How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Nice to have you back, Mark. Ladies and gentlemen, and everyone else. Men, women, them, they, the whole gamut. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Mark, how have you been? I haven't seen you in a while. No, no, you haven't seen me in a while. It's, uh, I, I've been great. I've been tremendous, actually, Dr. Joe. Thank you for asking. Thursdays haven't been uh, all that convenient for me the last couple of months, but we're here. We have an amazing show, which I'm really excited to, to get right into. Well, why don't, we, why don't we do that? Mark, could you introduce our guest for tonight, please? I would love to do that. Dr. Maurizio Fava is with us, and he is the psychiatrist-in-chief, the Department of Psychiatry at Mass General Hospital. Dr. Fava is a world leader in the field of depression. He has authored or co-authored more than 800 original articles published in medical journals with international circulation, edited eight books, and published more than 50 chapters and over 600 abstracts. Dr. Fava is editor-in-chief of Mass General's Mind, Mood, and Memory. Welcome to the show, Dr. Fava. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here to, you know, this evening. It is so wonderful. I'm, I'm so honored. I, you know, uh, just so, so people know, I, I did my child psychiatry fellowship at MGH McLean many years ago. Dr. Fava was already there. We passed in the hallway. But I am just truly honored that you would take the time come and talk with us tonight about such such an important topic thank you for being here we're going to be talking about covid and depression so dr fava where where do we start with this well i think we can start with uh, uh with the data if you wish with the fact that unfortunately we have seen a tripling of the rates of depression across the country and um and this changes if you wish have been particularly significant in the um, in the younger population. We we've seen a tremendous escalation of the number of kids with depression, uh, young adults, and you know we have wondered, you know, how how can it be? Why are we seeing this tremendous increase in the rates of depression? And um, and what are the contributing factors? Now, one you could argue is, is just the tremendous stress that COVID-19 has caused to the general population. The fear of dying, the fear of, you know, contracting the illness and, and dying, or the fear of your loved ones uh, getting sick and dying. So that per, that per se, that alone is a significant stress. You add to that the fact that the pandemic has caused social isolation. If you, if you remember, you, we went through weeks where people were hesitant to go to the supermarket or hesitant to go out of the house. And that kind of, that, that level of 
uh, isolation clearly has as a significant impact on mental health. In fact, it's very interesting that um, if you remember in China, they had a zero COVID policy. In some ways, they tried to eradicate the illness through uh, major lockdowns. And, you know, those lockdowns did work in China um, initially, but now with the Omicron variant, they don't seem, you know, they don't seem to be able to contain with lockdowns. And so the lockdowns become prolonged lockdowns, not two weeks or three weeks of being locked down in your apartment or your house or wherever you live. But now you're talking a more chronic lockdown. And uh, and we're seeing that China is now overwhelmed with mental health requests for treatment, and they, they're just not equipped. They just don't have the resources. And um, it's becoming, you know, delayed compared to us, but we see in China the pandemic within the pandemic, the pandemic of mental health issues within the pandemic. But we saw it much earlier because we had uh, the stress and the lockdown early on, um, and and uh, and we clearly have seen that. I'm just curious, uh, what what is the connection then between the anxiety and the fear that we have about contracting the disease and our loved ones dying and depression. Is this part of the fight, flight, freeze response that we have as just as humans trying to survive? Well, uh, you know, first of all, depression, you know, we use the term depression, but, you know, there are many forms of depression. Hmm. One common form is what we call anxious depression or depression with anxious features, where you're down in the dumps, you're feeling sad, you you have low energy, you have to push yourself to do things, but you're also at the same time very agitated and worrying and um, and really uh, you know kind of uh, uh, unable to to relax, and that. That type of anxious depression is quite common. But even if you don't have an anxious depression, anxiety, fear, chronic anxiety can bring about depression as a consequence of the stress of the anxiety. So anxiety can be by itself a risk factor for depression and can be, be become part of the de- the depressive, you know, syndrome, if you wish, once you get mm-hmm. depressed. So it does make sense that uh, chronic anxiety and chronic stress due to fear may be a contributing factor. Mm-hmm. And why Why so much more do you think in, in the teens and the young adults? Well, if you, you know, again, we don't know why, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, but if if you ask me to speculate, yes, uh, please, please speculate. Uh, <laughs> why, it, you know, young young people in my mind are very much typically part of a network, a social network in school. You know, they're highly, in some ways, uh, interdigitating with hmm. other peers, and and so if you suddenly take away, you know, a form of social support, a form of 
uh, bonding and connecting, that is quite stressful. You know, adults, you know, older adults, they probably by, you know, by the, by the time they're, they reach a certain age, they have experienced uh, periods of more greater social isolation or, uh, you know, they're not quite necessarily as interconnected uh, with others and seeing friends every day or talking to friends every day. But, you know, if you're, uh, if you're 16, you're probably interacting with a lot of other kids. Now, mm-hmm. you, can, you can say, but wait a minute, you know, we have, uh, uh, we have the phone, we have, uh, uh, you know, the, the smartphones, uh, you have, uh, you know, all these uh, digital tools, uh, but it's, it's not necessarily the same thing as uh, the physical presence, the, you know, the hanging out, the playing sports together. You know, if you think about, for example, uh, sports are a way of actually helping us with mental health. You know, practicing sports can help us with anxiety, can, uh, you know, physical activity uh, has been shown to reduce depressive symptoms. So many kids probably are using sports and, and physical activities as a way of, of keeping their mental health in good shape. You take that away, say no more contact sports, we're in the middle of a pandemic, you can't go to the gym, you can't do this, and you're, you're, uh, you're creating an imbalance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and again, do you think in some ways COVID has helped to almost normalize mental health? I mean, there was such a stigma. People didn't want to say anything. You know, they didn't want to admit they were depressed or anxious. Has COVID had a positive effect in that way? Well, there's no question that in, in some ways, you know, we, we have a say in Mass General, no family goes untouched, meaning there's no family that has not been touched by mental health issues. But what, um, what COVID has done has tripled the number of family members mm. with you know, with this, you know, problems. And and therefore, in some ways, um, it has normalized because now it's not just, you know, you know, dad or, or one kid. It's now several people in the family that, you know, have felt this way. And that, to me, there's no question that, uh, that, uh, that it has normalized it within the family where in some ways the distress now becomes something that people can share, you know, and say, you know, Oh, well, I've been feeling this way too. I gotta say, you know, and you, mm-hmm. and you kind of normalize it within your family and then you normalize it with your friends because, you know, they may tell you, you know, Boy, you know, this past uh, three months, I've not been able to sleep, and I, and I, you know, I'm so anxious, and I feel down, etc. So, um, we have seen that, uh, and all this is great. Yeah. The problem is that, then, what do you do about it? Okay, I would like to see somebody. You make a few phone calls, and nobody has an opening. Yeah. Nobody can see you. So 
you know, uh, and, and this challenge is what we say, the, pr the problem of access to care has become tremendous. So, uh, so we at Mass General, we're trying to address the problem of, you know, access to care. We developed new uh, team-based cares that, you know, increase the efficiency and, and uh, our ability to turn around things. We, um, we tried to develop uh, to leverage uh, uh, digital tools, uh, group therapy. You know, we, uh, we're trying to do many things to improve access. Mm. Uh, but there are things that, unfortunately, um, are out of our hands. Like, for example, uh, therapists, you know, are often not allowed to practice out of state. So if you live in a state where the number of psychologists or psychiatrists is low, you know, is lower per, per capita, you're not able to see a doctor from Mass General. Now that to me makes no sense because you know we're if you have a shortage, and by the way we have a tremendous shortage of clinicians. Mm -hmm. A few years ago, there was a study from the government to look at. What, what's the difference between, you know, what is the number of available psychologists and available psychiatrists, and what's the shortage? How many, how many more do we need by, you know, by the middle of this decade? And the projection was approximately 14,000 psychiatrists and over 50,000 psychologists. That was the shortage. Now, these estimates were made before COVID. So the, the real shortage is tremendous because, you know, you, you're, you don't have enough clinicians. So in essence, and we so, have to triple it. Don't we have to triple it given there, there's triple so we the need, amount of... We need, we, we need to have more trainees and, right. you know, and... Um, and then you find other rules or regulations, the same rules and regulations that say you cannot practice out of state. So you cannot save the life of someone who's suicidal in another state because, yeah. you know, it's another state. You can't do that. Um, what, what, what would be the basis of that? It's not like there's state-specific laws like there would be for the legal profession the, there, these are, there are state things. specific it's a great question mm -hmm. mark there are state specific licenses right so they want you to have if you're going to see a patient in you know i don't know in illinois you need to have a license in illinois right. and why wouldn't uh, that be a national board that it, is res there's reciprocity from state to state this is exactly what we're struggling with right now, Mark. Absolutely. This is a major, major issue right because now. Because there's in, no differences in, in mental health from Connecticut to Colorado to Florida. It's mental health. It's not like there's a specific law that's different in each state that would affect the mental health of a person. That makes zero sense. No, you're absolutely right. In fact, the, the Veterans Administration, the, the VA system, has full reciprocity. You can have a license anywhere in the state and you can practice in the VA. They figured that out. But for right. whatever reason, 
yeah. outside of the <laughs> VA, you have to have a license in every state in which you practice or see patients or, and, you know, and, and this is the paradox, right? One of the silver linings of this pandemic is that we discovered that telemedicine works very well for psychiatry. Right. That you right. can see patients virtually and you can help them virtually. So what are the limitations? You know, I could, in theory, see someone uh, on the West Coast and provide care there, but the laws say, no, 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 you can't do that because you don't have a license there. You can't do that. And um, so... Uh, but they're coming to you, whether it's virtual or not, it's where you're sitting, right? If you're sitting in your office in Boston and they're coming virtually to you from California, aren't they coming to your practice in Massachusetts? Uh, that's not how uh, regulators see it. They say you are virtually going to California and prescribing medicines in California. Yeah. You're practicing in California. And, and so, so the question is, why do we have these, uh, these rules and regulations in the midst of a crisis? Right. Mm -hmm. In the midst of, you know, uh, shouldn't we, in the context of the pandemic within the pandemic, should we say that in mental health, we have full reciprocity of all licenses across across the United States. So that if I want to help and save a life in California, I can do that if, you know, or, uh, you know, uh, or in Texas or in Oklahoma, there's no reason to create this, um, this barrier. But that's, that's one barrier. I give you another barrier. We have terrific trainees. We have, you know, psychology interns and postdocs. And they're very experienced. They, they can provide terrific therapy. Most insurance companies do not pay, do not reimburse uh, therapy provided by trainees. And, and to me, that means, you know, so, so if you're a trainee, you cannot bill. You cannot. Uh, so that affects that affects access, and, um, and and it doesn't make any sense to me. Again, in the context of now, some insurance companies are very illuminated, have started to recognize that. So we, you know, we have a couple of insurance companies that have done that, and I'm thrilled. But many of them continue to say you're a trainee cannot build you know for your services uh, because you're a trainee and that doesn't make sense uh, to me so not not only is there a limited resource but we are now restricting access to that resource you know i i i'm so glad you brought this up Marisa, because i actually was was speaking to senator markey's team our state senator about this about three or four weeks ago, trying to see whether we could at least get an exemption for college-age kids. Because if a college kid has 
a therapist and a prescriber in Boston, in Massachusetts, and they go to college in Rhode Island, unless I'm licensed in Rhode Island, can't really see them. But what's fascinating is the, the, it, it, none of this would have mattered, I don't think, if it wasn't for Telly. And we now have this, this absolute way to break down the geographic boundary. We have this remarkable telepsychiatry. And I honestly think part of, and I, this is very negative on my part, I'm not usually this negative, but I, I think the insurance companies realized that telepsychiatry in particular was going to be great, that it would break down these geographical barriers. In our outpatient programs at Riverside, the no-show rate has gone from like 30 to 35% to maybe 2%. I mean, people just show up because they can. Well, think about how more efficient you can be too and how many more patients you can actually see, which is going to cost the insurance company that much more money, right? right? But you know what's really sort of baffling to me? I can actually be in California, but if I'm licensed in Massachusetts, I can see patients in Massachusetts, even though I'm in California. Is, am, I, am I missing something here, Dr. Faber? I think that's the law. Right, right. You know, fundamentally, it's, it's again, uh, the regulations are there to ensure that where you're practicing, um, where you're prescribing medicines, et cetera, you have a, uh, a license, a state license. The question is, why not having a federal license? Why not mm -hmm. having a single uh, license that, or full reciprocity so that, uh, like, for example, in the European Union, you can, you know, with a, an Italian license, you can practice in France or, you know, there is reciprocity across European states. Yeah. But, you know, the it's fascinating to me that, that uh, that in, in in this crisis, we have not seen a move to um, to really eliminate these barriers. There is a third barrier that you know that is affecting access, and that and that and that one is of reimbursements. In, in Massachusetts, for example, the same billing code, the same type of visit, done by a primary care doctor. Same visit done by a psychiatrist is reimbursed sixty cents on the dollar compared to the primary care doctor. So, so what you're doing here basically is sending a message that uh, mental health care is less valuable yeah. because the same procedure is reimbursed at the lower level. And so, even though when we say that you know that we have parity in mental health. We don't have parity when it comes to reimbursements. What does that do then to the problem of access? Is that uh, hospitals that provide care, mental health care, find themselves uh, losing money or having, you know, uh, financial losses in delivering care because? To pay the doctors, their reimbursements are inadequate to compensate the doctors, and and therefore, in many places, you know, there was a decision. Well, 
if we cannot be paid for what we do, we're not going to really grow uh, our psychiatric service. We're not going to grow it because we're losing money on it. Now, we're very fortunate in Mass General that the hospital, despite the financial constraints, has decided to continue to grow psychiatry from 1934 when it was first established as one of the first psychiatry departments in a general hospital. And we've gone from, you know, a dozen of people, you know, in the the general hospital, uh, we now have 700 faculty members at Mass General. So we we have a huge department um, and we're very grateful for the support that uh, Mass General has provided to our department. But there are many places around the country where they were not so fortunate. They gradually trimmed down and uh, their psychiatry departments because they, they, their reimbursements were you know, grossly inadequate. So that's the other thing that we ought to see is true parity. Mm-hmm. Compensating doctors for the visits the same way that they're compensating another specialist or a primary care doctor. That, that, that by itself will uh, improve access. Also improve recruitment. I mean, if, if, if we're not getting compensated, why would people come into our field? So that's going to also help with recruitment. I, again, could not agree more. It is one of the most silly, frustrating things and it is a subtle, subtle way, sometimes not so subtle, of saying that your mental health doesn't matter. At least we're calling it mental health now more than mental illness. But it's still saying it didn't matter. Why, why do you think there was such a barrier? Why was there such a stigma to begin with? Why, would, why was this dismissed in human beings? Well, I think that, you know, if you think about it, uh, you know, the uh there's you know for for decades for for centuries there's been a stigma you know shame guilt um and rather than than uh kind of saying to ourselves this is a this is an an illness like any other illness no different from diabetes or um or high blood pressure uh, we have, for whatever reason, stigmatized the, this condition, and therefore also created, you know, so the so-called carve-outs to have the insurance reimbursement not being part of the general reimbursement, but being carved out to companies that would then, quote-unquote, manage this aspect as if it was not part of the. Uh, of the of the person that was a, some sort of an appendix, and you you had to uh, you had to have someone else had to manage that you know from an insurance standpoint. All these things reflect, in my mind, uh, the stigma and the fact that, that there's been discrimination in in payments in uh, in how. Uh, uh, men, you know, mental health has been viewed, and how we um, uh, we have dealt with it. So, 
a silver lining of the pandemic within the pandemic is that now people realize this is really important. Yeah. This is, yeah. you know, uh, you know, we, we have over 40,000 suicides each year in the United States. We have over 70,000 lethal overdoses each year in the United States. And when one could argue that also, in addition to suicides and overdoses, uh, that, you know, uh, road rages and manifestations of behavioral discontrol um, uh, are appearing very commonly now. And so it's a reminder of the importance of mental health, you know, uh, helping people to feel more balanced, more in control. And um, so I'm hoping that we're going to see changes. But um, we've clearly encountered significant barriers to providing care within the country. Yeah. It is, I think, such an important question to try to speculate on where did this stigma come from? And, you know, one, one of the ideas is it has to do with trust. If you can't, if you can't anticipate the behavior of someone because they're depressed or psychotic or rageful, we mistrust them. And that mistrust is a devaluation. And when you devalue someone, they feel disrespected. You know, for me, it all comes down to respect. For me, you know, in my role as a psychiatrist, what I find is every person who comes to me on some level feels less valuable. And all I want to do is remind them of their value. And when I remind them of their value, that then leads to trust. And they can begin really exploring who they are and why they do what they do. We now have this globally. Where we have, where, as you point out, you know, so many people are now recognizing that this is part of the spectrum of who we are as human beings. Not everybody may get depressed, but everybody's felt sad. Not everybody may have a panic attack, but everybody's felt worried. And, and not everybody may get psychotic, but everybody has thought somebody was saying something about them at some point. So I hope that the pandemic has normalized mental health. So it's just part of who we are. Do you think that that could have an impact? Yeah, no, there's no question that, uh, that you know, we're, we're starting to see, uh, you know, kind of an improvement in, in how mental health is perceived. Uh, there's no question about it. And I think it, this is very positive. What we're doing to then address the access problem, uh, that's something that we, we have collectively as a society uh, do. We have to increase the number of trainees. We have to uh, leverage uh, digital health tools. We have to uh, leverage uh, paraprofessionals that could uh, learn the basic techniques to help uh, uh, you know, to deliver, you know, therapy and so forth. Um, so we need to be creative and responsive to the crisis. And I think that, we'll, you know, we'll get there. But uh, we also need uh, a re regulatory changes, 
legislative changes, insurance changes uh, uh, to truly address the problem. Yeah. Well, it, it seems like a, a heavy lift in some ways, but on the other hand, it's so important, so necessary, and so timely. One thing I wanted to ask Dr. Fava about, if I may, is are we seeing some effects of people coming from COVID back to normalcy, right? Back to the pre-COVID. Have they created a cocoon that is making it challenging to come out of? Uh, Mark, that's a great question because, you know, the um, uh, there's no question in my mind that uh, COVID's social isolation um, has actually in some ways reinforced fears of social interactions for those with social anxiety. Uh, if If you suffer from social anxiety yourself, you know, the uh, uh, COVID-19 has actually been aligned with your fears, right? So you felt actually comfortable limiting your social interactions and so forth. And, you know, in general, we overcome fears through exposure and response prevention. So by exposing ourselves to what we're afraid of and preventing ourselves from walking away, from avoiding it. So, um, so if I'm, you know, let's say that I'm an 18-year-old kid and I'm going on a freshman in college, and I was like very scared of being, you know, in classes and interacting. But you know, now it's all virtual. You know, I see my classmates. Uh, you know, and I kind of got comfortable with being in a class because, you know, it's it's all. It, it's all on Zoom, or um, and then the classes resume, and I have to go in person, and now I have to be with people, and now I have to speak up in between classes, and now I'm very rusty. Now I, you know, my my social anxiety is really growing because I, you know I, I really uh, I'm getting concerned, you know. Uh, you know, I don't know if I'm saying the right thing, etc. The fundamental principle is that if you don't use it, you lose it, right? If you don't use uh, social skills, you tend to lose them. And and if you don't expose yourself to what you're afraid of, which could be social situations, you become even more afraid. And so, there's no question that for some people, for some people. Uh, restoring social activities will have a mood elevating effect. Will uh, you know for those who like the interaction, uh, th- this is great. This is exactly uh, this can have antidepressant effects. You know, uh, uh, you know, being together with other people. But those with social anxiety who have been in in this kind of uh, isolated. Uh, uh, lockdown, they're gonna. They may be significantly more anxious than they were before the pandemic. Hmm. Mark, are you finding that's happening as as you begin having your own social milieu? I I feel like it is happening. Um, 
to a certain extent when it comes to networking, right? So in the business context, people get together to socially network, right? To, to, to work together. And, and a lot of times it's done on an after hour social and it, and it seems like it's really kind of slow to gain traction. And I can see that the numbers are still down and, and when folks actually do come, there's still an awkwardness and it could be in my head, or it could be, I haven't seen this person in the flesh for two years, but there, it seems like there's something absolutely amiss with, um, with, with the connection that was once there. Hmm. Certainly makes sense to me. And, and, uh, that, you know, that in some cases that would be, and that would be true. Uh, but as I said, there's also the other side of it is, is that some people are really being craving for it and they finally get to be with other people and, and socialize. I think especially with adolescents, you know, because from my point of view, an adolescent wants three things. They want to, to be social, feel pleasure and take risks. And right now with, with COVID sort of on the wane, but maybe not, um, they can do all three at the same time just by hanging out. They can be social, feel pleasure, and maybe take a little risk here and there. So that's the adolescent brain. Um, and yet they got so depressed, these kids. Are they, does this change? Um, I, I know we've got a lot to talk about, but does it change the intervention at all? I mean, are we going to see more use of, of antidepressants or is this, is this going to be affected by more change in the social domain? Uh, you know, we know that depression can respond to antidepressants, but can also respond to talking therapies. And we know that um, even certain digital uh, interventions that utilize uh, cognitive behavioral therapy can be effective as well. So I think that, you know, there's a, a range of options for people uh, as long as they have access to those treatments. Mm-hmm. And is there something um, that, maybe within a family that family can do for each other that that may not have trained professional? I think that, you know, the, the importance of having dinner together, of having social times within the family, uh, I think is very important. You know, having, you know, one kid that goes and eats by himself or herself and another, another time and another, you know, um, that that reinforces the lockdown mentality. So I th- mm-hmm. think that there's no question that there is a terrific psychologist in Mass General, whose name is Anne Fischel, who has emphasized the importance of kind of the dinner together. It's funny, when, when we ran, uh, I had a program called Castle, Adolescent Substance Use, and we did just that. We had kids learn how to cook a meal together a French chef come in and they cooked it together and then they ate the food and shared it. And it was absolutely remarkable. Um, Dr. Fava, the show, Dr. Joe show has a lot to do with the I am approach. The idea that no one's broken. We're all doing the best we can at every moment in time with the potential of change influenced by four domains, our home domain, social domain, the biological domain, and what I call the I see how I see myself, how I think other people see me. Because those four domains interconnect, 
A small change in any domain can have a big effect. We don't need to change everything. What small change can you recommend to our listeners to help them as they come out of the pandemic? Well, uh, you know, I think that the uh, critical change that we all need to um, focus on is uh, that of trying to take care of ourselves in small ways, whether it's taking a break during the day and, you know, walking, you know, around the neighborhood, whether it's uh, uh, it's talking to a friend, having times for ourselves that feel nourishing, I think is absolutely critical. You know, sometimes we get so caught up with the need to do things and that we don't have those moments of peace or connectedness that uh, feel like a nourishment to uh, to ourselves. So uh, I think that it's very important that we all think, what can I do today that feels like a nourishment, a mental nourishment? And, you know, pick anything that will do that. Play the piano. You know, talk to a friend. Whatever works for you. There's no, there's no universal approach to this. It's a personalized approach. Whatever works for you, I think, do something every day that feels like you're doing something for yourself to nourish uh, yourself mentally. Yeah, that, that fits so with the I am because, you know, once you remember that you are valuable, respect yourself, value yourself, absolutely can begin to nourish yourself as well. And boy, we really need to do that right now. We've been through a lot. The other truth of the I am, uh, everyone has one. Everyone is interested in what you think or feel about them, which has an effect on their biological domain because you know it feels differently when you feel respected or disrespected. And you're part of someone's or home or social domain. So what this means is you control no one, you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Dr. Faba, psychiatrist-in-chief at Mass General, what kind of influence do you want to be? Well, uh, you know, I hope that one of the things that I like to influence is the view of what mental health and mental illness is. Not something that is... Uh, sort of a fault or a weakness, but something that we can all have, something that we should embrace as part of us and and feel comfortable discussing, addressing, and sharing with others. If, if I can, I would like to see more of that, more of kind of openness and open recognition. I think that the pandemic has certainly helped, but we're not quite there yet. We still have people who may be suffering a great deal and and just try to hide it. 
because they see that that is um, that there is something wrong with them in even admitting that they're suffering. Yeah, we hope they all come out of the shadows because we are here. Dr. Faba, thank you so much for your time and for your wisdom. My Take pleasure. Care. Thank you. Bye. Bye, everyone. We'll see you next week on the Dr. Joe Show. Thanks, Larry.